JB, want to take you back to a couple things from last week. Uh, first off, uh, listen, uh, I've taken a lot of flack for the dance video that you insisted on showing uh, in the last video. Uh, some people have offered dance lessons. Some people said it wasn't that bad. I think they were just being nice. But uh, they were very concerned how speechless I became at the uh, beginning of last show. And uh, they do credit you for embarrassing the hell out of me. So congratulations on that, okay? Thank you. You're welcome, everybody. I'm here. I'm here for the fans. However, on the flip side, I took a lot of flack for calling out the game between Mary Hart and Baylor and Whitewater as kind of one of those 14 to 7 games, something that would be close and indicative of Whitewater having a very good defense and Mary Hart and Baylor's defense maybe being a little bit under par right now. Um, what did you see, and uh, are you going to give me a little credit on this, even though we both technically lost oh, the yeah. game? Oh, and I, I, I thought that it would be a blowout, so I was way off. <laughs> you know, I, I picked Whitewater to, to lose by like 20-something, so it shows you what I know. But, um, yeah, it was, a, it was an exciting game. It was great to be able to see that level of football uh, week two. I mean... I think this will definitely shake things up for the playoffs when, when they eventually come around. But, hey, credit both of those teams. They put on a heck of a performance, 14,000-plus at the perk. I mean, uh, it was rocking. What a, what a great day for Division Three. It was a real interesting day for Division Three on Saturday, let's face it. And uh, right there uh, on the bottom line of uh, that illegal video, what do we mean by that? You might have caught a little wind of it on Around the Nation. We'll show you some of uh, what was going on and uh, get a response, actually, from the school involved. The drive from the game we were just talking about. Extra point block? Oh, it's a big one. And it uh, defined a, an interregional game for sure. And we've got all of those things and a whole lot more here. It's season 15 of In the Huddle. JB, we do have a lot to get through in this show. We want to try to keep it to around 40 minutes like we did last week. Good luck. Uh, but uh, yeah, but we're going to let you give the 30,000-foot view of week one in terms of what you were surprised about, what you saw, what you thought might happen that did, all that stuff. The floor is yours, sir. Well, week two was carnage. I mean, lots of teams in the top 25 lost. We saw... Lots of upsets. We saw lots of amazing individual performances. Uh, there was a game between uh, Franklin and Marshall and Susquehanna that was crazy, and we'll cover off a little more on that later. Uh, just some teams lost that we never would have picked, um, losing in certain matchups. Uh, wow, yeah, it was just a crazy, crazy weekend of football where a lot of the unexpected that kind of happened. I think we should just go for it. I think this is the point in time where we just say, this is crunch time for the week two of the 2022 Division Three college football season.
We're going to start at a game I attended, Endicott at WPI. Endicott started with a 27-yard Ryan Smith field goal, but four minutes later, Shane Elward gets a 15-yard touchdown pass from Clayton Marenghi that made it 10-0 in the first quarter. We have to fast forward to the third quarter for more scoring, and Caggianelli gets an 8-yard touchdown run to make it 17-0 for Endicott. Then look at this concentration by Shane Alleyward. Uh, he makes a great catch and run, 64 yards from Clayton Marenghi to make it 24-0. And that's our final as Endicott goes to 2-0. Shane Alleyward, three receptions, 122 yards, two touchdowns. The Endicott defense with three interceptions, eight sacks, 10 tackles for loss total. A field goal block in their second consecutive shutout. Imagine that happening here. Then let's go to Mass Maritime at SUNY Maritime on Friday night. And in that game, Mass Maritime led 7-3 early in the second quarter. Declan Van Ness gets a 20-yard pass from Mark Murphy for the touchdown to make it 14-3 Mass Maritime. But SUNY Maritime in the second half would come back. First, it's a Tate Nider 10-yard touchdown run to make it 14-10, still Mass Maritime's lead. Then Ian Durda in the fourth quarter gets a 21-yard pass from Steven Stasi to make it a lead for New York Maritime, 17-14. They win the game by that score. As we said, Mass Maritime led 14 to three at the half. Stassi had 22 for 37 evening, 256 passing touchdown. Also though, Mass Maritime's defense had four sacks, nine tackles for loss, two fumble recoveries in the game. Give them some chowder though, down in SUNY Maritime. Also, this is on Saturday now, Salve Regina versus MIT. We'll start 13 seconds left in the second quarter as Colin Vollmer gets a 10-yard touchdown pass from Oakley Daining. That made it 7-0 at halftime in favor of MIT. Salve Regina with 15 seconds left in the third quarter got a touchdown. It was Jake Stack to Keith Sutton for 78 yards to tie the game. In the fourth quarter, MIT's Nico Bullhoff I got a 32-yard field goal to make it 10-7 MIT. We go all the way deep into the fourth quarter, 24 seconds left. Jack St Jake Stack finds Josh Letelier for a four-yard touchdown in this 13-play drive that started with two minutes left. They got that touchdown with 24 seconds left. It's 13 to 10, Salve Regina. Then this is the last chance here for MIT. Oakley Dennings pass is intercepted by Jack Zingaro at the MIT 41-yard line, and that would do it. MIT uh, loses that game in the end, 13 to 10 to Salve Regina. Stack, two passing touchdowns, including the game winner that we saw with 24 seconds left. Daining, a passing touchdown and two interceptions. Also in Region 1, we got plenty to go in Region 1 and Region 2. I'll tell you that right now, folks. It was Salisbury versus Stevenson. Stevenson had a 14-7 lead in the second quarter before Andre Matthews got a 38-yard touchdown run with 5.08 left in the second quarter for Salisbury. It was a tie game at that point. About, what, uh, 17 seconds later, Steven Smothers gets a 48-yard touchdown pass from Ryan Sedgwick to give Stevenson back the lead, 21-14. Still in the second, 46 seconds left. Hunter Haruz gets a four-yard run to tie things up again for Salisbury, 21-21. We fast-forward to the fourth quarter as Brandon Walker gets a one-yard touchdown run. Stevenson leads 28-21. They'll add one more uh, touchdown with 33 seconds left. And that was it for Stevenson, 35-21 in favor of the Mustangs. Sedgwick was 16 for 25, 216 yards, three touchdowns and two interceptions. Matthews for Salisbury, 99 total yards, rushing touchdown and a passing touchdown. Last but not least in Region 1, 
boy, this was just a score fest. And this was almost one of the most amazing comebacks in the history of all of NCAA college football, folks. That's you just fasten your seatbelt here. In the second quarter, 204 left. Anna Maria's Justin McMillan gets a 42 yard pa uh, touchdown pass from Alex Cohen. It's 42 to 6. Anna Maria at this point. The halftime score, 42-13. Eventually, they would expand the lead back to 56-20 with 47 seconds left in the third quarter. Well, 17 seconds left in the third. Keenan Little gets a 75-yard touchdown pass from Dante Villasantos. That made it 56-27, Anna Maria. 13-40 left, fourth quarter. Jean Marvins gets a 61-yard run to make it 56-34, Anna Maria. They'd add a safety would mass Dartmouth. 56-36, 11-19 left in the fourth quarter. Keenan Little again, 35-yard touchdown pass from Dante Villasantos. Now it's 56-42, Anna Maria. 5:35 left. Avila Santos gets his own 23-yard touchdown run. Now it's 56-48, Anna Maria. Finally, Anna Maria responds as Ryan Russell gets a 14-yard touchdown run with a minute 38 left to make it 63-48. If they had failed to convert in that drive. There would have been a chance for a 36-point comeback in that game. But Anna Maria wins it 63-48. The teams combined for 1,190 yards. Cohen, 448 total yards, six passing touchdowns, and two rushing touchdowns. Avila Santos, 19 for 41, 384 yards, four passing, and one rushing touchdowns. JB, Region 1 was wild. Yeah, and that, that doesn't even cover off some of the games from Friday night. Like, Nichols put up 71 points in their uh, victory over Dean, who scored 55. So, 71-55, talk about a lot of points in, in New England. Pretty crazy. Uh, FDU Florham, quietly starting the season 2-0. and they, they took down William Patterson. We saw um, Randolph Macon take care of Catholic. Framingham State uh, beat St. John Fisher. A few other... It's kind of scores that jump out to me, Frank. The the Lyco Lebanon Valley twenty one to twenty game uh, looks like that was a pretty close call. Uh, kind of unofficial MAC play conference game, not really conference game. Anyway, and uh, Coast Guard uh, gets their first win of the season over Curry. Uh, Westcon takes care of Albright. Rochester beats Alfred State. So yeah, a lot of action in Region One. Let's go to Region 2. We've got plenty of action to go here as well. And another game I attended as Carnegie Mellon visited RPI. And to start that game off, it was Hearson with a 23-yard field goal for Carnegie Mellon to make it 3-0 at 5-19 left first quarter. We wouldn't see scoring again until the fourth quarter. But it was set up by uh, an interception here. Matt Peterkowski was intercepted by Logan Young at the 31-yard line. He rumbles all the way to the 1-yard line. Three plays later, Ben Mills, the quarterback for Carnegie Mellon, gets the touchdown run and gives his team a 10-7 lead. But again, as I said the other day, it ain't over when it's RPI. Uh, Dean Ninch gets a pass from Jay Kazanowski to make it 10-7 with the touchdown with 146 left in the fourth quarter. Now, you'll see that the onside kick was not successful for RPI, but they would get the ball back with 46, or excuse me, 47 seconds left. Here's the last play of the game as Kazanowski's uh, pass is incomplete. Carnegie Mellon holds on to win this game 10-7. RPI's defense held them to 161 yards versus 261 for RPI. Two interceptions, nine tackles for loss for RPI's defense. Carnegie Mellon's defense, seven sacks, 10 tackles for loss. Linebacker uh, Logan Young with that interception as you saw. Elsewhere in Region 2, 
It's Hobart versus Morrisville State in a very weird game that we'll talk a little bit more about after crunch time. First, though, with 14-28 left in the second quarter, Justin Adams gets a 28-yard touchdown pass from Stephen Freerich to make it a 7-0 lead for Morrisville. Then about four minutes later, Sinai break with a 76-yard fumble recovery for a touchdown. The scoop and score makes it 14-0 Morrisville. After a Hobart field goal, they'll get the ball back late in the second quarter, but look what happens here as the fumble recovery by Dante McGowan makes it 21-3 Morrisville State. That realistically ended Hobart's chances in that game 24-13 your final in favor of Morrisville State. David Cruson did not play in this game. Again, more later. Morrisville State's defense, two fumble recovery touchdowns. Hobart's defense held Morrisville to 167 total yards. See a pattern forming here. You get in the 160s in yardage, you can win games apparently in Division Three. suddenly. Let's move on to Brockport at Ithaca. And Ithaca's Jalen Leonard Osborne gets a 34-yard touchdown pass from A.J. Wingfield to make it a 10-0 game halfway through the first quarter. About four minutes later, Julian Dumega gets a two-yard touchdown pass from Wingfield to make it 17-0. Before halftime, a Brockport scoring threat was thwarted. As you can see, this Todd Simmons pass intercepted by Michael Blanchard, and that kind of really set the tone for the rest of the game. In the third quarter, five minutes left, Michael Anderson with the 20-yard touchdown pass from A.J. Wingfield made it 24-0, and that was our final. Wingfield, 15 for 27, 166 yards, three passing touchdowns. Ithaca's defense, a fumble recovery, interception, three sacks, six tackles for loss. Let's go to Rowan versus Springfield. Springfield started with a 14-0 lead in this game, but at 14-7, Rowan's James Farah gets a 95-yard touchdown pass from Mike Husney to make it 14-14 with 10.55 left second quarter. Nine minutes later, John Maldonado gets a 29-yard touchdown pass from Husney to make it 21-14 at halftime in favor of Rowan. In the third quarter, we'll show you some stuff later on that happened in the third quarter, but with 5.53 left, David Wells gets a one-yard touchdown run. It's 21-21. Tied at that point, but Rowan added a 34-yard Jake Hurler field goal to take a 24-21 lead. 35 seconds left third quarter. Noah Wagenblast, a 38-yard touchdown pass from David Wells. I thought this was, this was the uh, triple option. They're throwing touchdowns suddenly. 28-24 in favor of Springfield. 13-25 left. C.J. Barrett. 44-yard touchdown pass from Husney. It's 31-28 Rowan now. The team's traded touchdowns. Rowan had a 38-35 lead with a minute two left. The final play, though, Armando Torres. The pass was intercepted by A.J. Curvin, and that would do it as the final score was 38-35 in favor of Rowan. The teams combined for just about 900 yards, and the Springfield offense had 360 rushing yards. That's not a surprise, I guess, in some ways. Husney, 21 for 31, 316 yards, five passing touchdowns, and an interception. Now let's go to the Centennial Conference for a couple games, and these are in-conference games, folks, so let's uh, keep that in mind here. First, Johns Hopkins at your sinus. Uh, halftime score was a Johns Hopkins comfortable 21-7 lead. Comfortable? Not really, actually, because with six minutes left in the third quarter, Dallas Evans gets a 29-yard touchdown pass from Jack Sinitska to make it 21-14 Johns Hopkins. Then, two minutes later, Octavius Cart gets a six-yard pass from Sinitska to make it 21-20 Johns Hopkins as the kick failed. Three seconds left, third quarter. Aaron Anderson, a 39-yard fumble recovery for a touchdown, made it 26-21 your sinus. 
but the next play was a 96-yard record-breaking kickoff return for Johns Hopkins as E.J. Tellerico gets that touchdown and gives his team a 29-26 lead. Your sign is would tie it with a field goal, but with 6.07 left, Quinn Revere gets a 12-yard pass from Ryan Stevens. It's 36-29 Johns Hopkins. Your sign has had a first and goal at the two, but three plays later, they were only at the one-yard line. They had one last chance. Fourth and goal from the one. Tony Holden's rush looked like he may have cut in just a bit too early and was stopped, and Johns Hopkins survived. Final score, 36-29. Ryan Stevens, 16 for 30, 166 yards, two passing touchdowns and an interception. EJ Tellerico, 96-yard kickoff return for a touchdown, easy for me to say. And again, Jack, uh, I want to make sure I say it right at least once here. Sinitska, Jack, gets 27 for 52. 333, 331 yards, three passing touchdowns, and one interception. Finally, in Region 2, Franklin and Marshall versus Susquehanna. And this game really seemed like another one of those, hey, this game's over early uh, type games. Leading 25-7 late in the first half, Susquehanna's Bryce Ellinger gets an 18-yard touchdown pass from Michael Roosh. It's 32-7 Susquehanna. That was the halftime score. Nothing to worry about as always. Or is there? It's crunch time. In the second half, Franklin and Marshall would get a touchdown, but there was a response by Susquehanna. Kyle Howes with the 93-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. I should speak slowly now, so he's in the end zone. 39-13, again, Susquehanna leading. But then they'd make a mistake as an interception return gets them uh, a touchdown on the board to make it 39-20, to still in favor of Susquehanna. Fourth quarter we go to now, 2:01 left. It's Mitch Wagner with this 13-yard touchdown run. It's 39-29 Susquehanna. The onside kick failed, but one play later, look at this rush by Frankie Negrini. He fumbles it, and it's recovered by Jacob Hill. And a few plays later, Jack Sutton gets a 19-yard touchdown pass from Logan Klaus. It's 39-36 Susquehanna. You'll see the onside kick here. This is a close call. They said it was illegal touching by Franklin and Marshall. You make the call there as we slow it down as well. But ultimately, Susquehanna was able to kneel it out. They win the game 39-36 over Franklin and Marshall. Their defense, Franklin Marshall, had four interceptions and a fumble recovery. Justin Gerhardt had three interceptions and a touchdown. Kyle Howes for Susquehanna, four receptions, 53 yards, two kickoff returns, 188 yards, and two touchdowns. That's just a great day right there. And JB, a lot of great days for a lot of great players throughout Region 2. I don't even know where you start here. We'll talk about Hobart and we'll talk about Rowan later. What about some of the other games? Well, you know, one of the more interesting games that started right at noon on Saturday was this Del Val Montclair State game. Um, ended up only being a 14 to 6 final. Not sure if it tells me more that Montclair State's back or maybe Del Val isn't as strong as they were last season. I don't know. That was an interesting matchup, though, um, between two, two quality programs. We'll have to wait and see. Cortland wins big, no surprise there. Muhlenberg wins big, no surprise. Hilbert, welcome to the party. <laughs> 63 to nothing. I guess, you know, first time program, you're going to kind of expect that. But hey, at least they're, they're getting out there and playing. Utica won again. Uh, Mount St. Joseph outlasts Alfred at the pit. Um, elsewhere in Region 2, 
the uh, some some school that you might have heard of, Frank. I, I think it's called Onion College um, uh, Union. Seventy-six points, the most since eighteen ninety-four. Are you kidding me? So this is the Union team that was supposed to be kind of like an average middle of the road, huh? Seventy-six points. Andrew Santilla must have been exhausted yelling about touchdowns all day. Um, otherwise, you have Grove City put up 55 on, on Geneva. Washington Jefferson also scored in the 50s. Um, Averett hanging on to, to beat Christopher Newport's kind of a surprise to me. Um, that's another kind of cross-regional matchup. But, yeah, some big scores in Region 2 and definitely some head scratchers too, though, Frank. Uh, so, you know, when you were wearing the leather helmets in that game against Union in 1890-something uh, or whatever it was, uh, how, how was that game? Do you remember it well or is it foggy? Uh, I might have knocked a tooth out or something. It, it, it was a while ago. Yeah, you, you are pretty old, we know. So anyway, you, you know, you realize it's just going to be revenge all season after the dance video. Uh, we are going to go to Region 3 here. And first off, we're going to go Huntingdon versus Birmingham Southern. Birmingham Southern was trailing 14-7 to in the second quarter until with 12.49 left second quarter. Brandon Rue gets a 68-yard touchdown pass from Matt McCleary. That tied the game at 14 apiece. Eventually, the halftime score would be 23-21 Huntingdon. In the third quarter with 150 left, Matt McCleary with a 78-yard touchdown run for Birmingham Southern. That gave them a 29-23 lead. Huntingdon in the fourth quarter would respond with 16 left. It's Kahari McReynolds with a 28-yard touchdown run and the lead back for Huntingdon, 30-29. 4-10 left fourth quarter, Birmingham Southern responds. John Lewis with his own five-yard touchdown run. 35-30, Birmingham Southern. But with 109 left, Huntington's Kyler Cheney gets a pass from Landon Cotney from 13 yards out to make it 38-35 Huntington. Still chances here, though, for Birmingham Southern. And eventually, Matt McCleary on a uh, big play at the end of the game. For some late-game heroics here in Week 2. McCleary in trouble, and he's bulldozed, and that'll do it. Huntington has won the Wesley Cup for the first time since 2017. Sacked for a loss of 11 yards. That ended things right there. That was it with a final score of 38-35. Huntington beating Birmingham Southern. The teams combined for just short of 1,100 yards. McReynolds, 24 rushes, 210 yards, three rushing touchdowns. Cotney, the game-winning touchdown pass with 109 remaining. Finally in Region 3, not nearly as many games to cover, but this was an exciting one to say the least. Wheaton at Trinity. With no time on the clock in the first quarter, B.J. Stewart gets a 20-yard touchdown pass from Tucker Horn to make it 7-0 Trinity. Again, almost at the end of the second quarter, Wheaton, with 28 seconds left, gets a 36-yard touchdown pass from Will Bowers to Giovanni Weeks. It's a tie game at halftime, 7 apiece. 8.48 left. In the third quarter, Blake Lynn, a very short 20-yard field goal, gave Trinity back the lead 10-7. We'd go all the way to the last play of regulation as Jack Riken gets a 42-yard field goal to make it 10-10. We are tied going into overtime for the first time this season. We can say that on crunch time. In that first overtime, here's what happened. Trinity has struggled a little bit today as this goal line scenario, but Grigsby bowling ahead is able to get in on the first play, first and goal. Legend Grigsby, love the name, 17-10, Trinity leading the game, so now it's Wheaton's turn. He's going to touch the football. Weeks does get the ball, and he does get the edge. 
and gets the touchdown. Giovanni Weeks with that two-yard touchdown run. Here's the extra point. Clearly, it's... Jewish. It's blocked. That one's blocked! The kick is blocked! The extra point is no good, and Trinity is going to win this game! Wow! 17-16, Trinity wins with the blocked extra point. It did look low. I'm not sure if it would have been good if it uh, cleared everybody, but still, we'll never know as it was down as a block. And that was by Douglas to win it in overtime. Bowers, 26 for 35, 302 yards and one passing touchdown for Wheaton. But our friend Caleb Harmel, 11 tackles, two and a half for loss, two pass breakups. Got to expect that from that leader on that team. And he is uh, delivering from back when he appeared on In the Huddle. Speaking of In the Huddle, and my co-host James Baker, he'll tell you about some other scores in Region 3. Yeah, not a ton of games, as you said, Frank, but there were some interesting results as far as, you know, I think Millsaps um, taking down McMurray uh, was interesting. Barry put up 56. Uh, they have a big game coming up in week three that we'll tell you about in a little bit. They seem to be catching their stride. Maryville, uh, another tough, tough outing uh, for them. They came up a little short against center. And then elsewhere, Bellhaven just cruising right along, 42 points. And um, Sol Ross State drops a, a game to a D2 team, Texas A&M uh, Kingsville. But yeah, kind of a quiet, quiet weekend in Region 3, except for, oh yeah, some other teams and games are going to be talking about in the next couple of seconds. Well, we'll start with one of those, and it's George Fox at Howard Payne for one of those interregional matchups as we go to the regions four, five, six. Remember, we break these down by who won the game when we have the interregional matchups, so that's why they're appearing on this slide in this way. George Fox would take a 21 to 10 lead in the halftime. In the third quarter, 11:01 left. Howard Payne's Jordan Carroll catches a three-yard touchdown pass from Landon McKinney to make it 21 to 17. George Fox. Early in the fourth, the teams would trade touchdowns, but leading by three, George Fox gets a touchdown pass from Aiden Sean, 54-yarder, uh, to Dylan Dobbins. It's 35-25. 8:10 left in the fourth quarter. Landon McKinney gets a 12-yard touchdown run with 5-10 left in the fourth quarter. That made it 35-32 in favor of George Fox. But Leon Johnson III gets a 65-yard touchdown pass from Sean. It's 42-32 George Fox. They won't go away, Will Howard Payne, 207 left. JVN Miles gets a three-yard run for a touchdown, 42-39, still George Fox, but they were forced to punt, so Howard Payne had a chance. Landon McKinney, though, intercepted by Kobe Andrews, and that would do it. The final 42-39 George Fox as the teams combined for 968 total yards. Sean from George Fox, 19 for 35, 353 yards, five passing touchdowns, and one rushing touchdown. Let's go to the North Central Wabash game. And we know the prowess of Ethan Greenfield, but what about D'Angelo Hardy? First, midway through the first quarter, Hardy gets a 10-yard touchdown pass from former guest Luke Lanen to make it a uh, score of 7-0 in favor of North Central. Then in the first quarter with 29 seconds left, Hardy gets a 12-yard touchdown run. That made it 21-0 in favor of North Central. You can kind of see where this one's going, folks. In the fourth quarter, we'll fast forward, 11.49 left. D'Angelo Hardy from Luke Lanen, 19-yard touchdown pass, 42-12. Both he and Greenfield accounted for three touchdowns in this game. The final score, North Central 56, Wabash 12. Easy for me to say as North Central outgained Wabash 
542 to 257. Greenfield, 21 rushes to 132 yards and those three rushing touchdowns I just told you about. The quarterback, uh, Thompson for Wabash, 193 total yards, one passing touchdown and an interception. Folks, I know a lot of people have been uh, really wanting to see this video. We were able to get it. Thanks to Angela at UWW for helping deliver this for us. 23 gigabyte file, but we downloaded it somehow in some way. Yeah, it's incredible quality and we're gonna give you a lot of it here. So number one versus number six here on the road was number one and the teams traded touchdowns in the first quarter. So we were tied at seven in the second quarter. 6.03 left, Tyler Holty, a 17 yard touchdown pass from Evan Lewandowski, made it 14 to seven Whitewater. 58 seconds left though in that second quarter, Anthony Avila, a 43 yard field goal, makes it 14 to 10. That's the halftime score in favor of Whitewater. 11.26 left, third quarter. Afonso Thomas gives Mary Harden Baylor their lead. It's a two-yard touchdown run, 17-14 UMHB. Six minutes later, Tyler Holty on this play. Love that pile. Third down and long. Dancing around. Lewandowski now to his left. Throws. Has a man at the seven and diving for the end zone. Touchdown on the play as the receiver is Holty once again. That's his guy, and why not? And what a nice job again by Lewandowski rolling to his left. It's 21-17 after the 18-yard uh, touchdown from Evan Lewandowski in favor of Whitewater. But three minutes later, Mary Harden Baylor's Brandon Jordan, you know him, 11-yard touchdown pass from Kyle King, 24-21 Mary Harden Baylor. Let's go to a very, very dynamic sequence deep into the fourth quarter. First and goal at the two-yard line, the, the Whitewater two that is, Afonso Thomas only gets a one-yard gain. Second and goal, Thomas tries to rush up the middle, cannot get into the end zone. That brings up third and goal. KJ Miller tries to go to the right side, but he kind of gets stopped up by his own teammate trying to make a block for him, and so he's short at the one-yard line. Here's fourth and goal from the one. Give is going to be no give. Play action, throw to the end zone, and it's dropped. The receiver had it and dropped it. That would have ended effectively the game. Instead, the Warhawk defense with an amazing goal line stand. Wow. They try the pass. He was open, and he just dropped the ball as the defender came at him. That would have effectively ended the game, but we continue with 247 left. Folks, you've heard about it. This is going to be called Forever the Drive. Here are all the completions and run plays from the drive. It's going to be in the end zone. Three wide receivers to the near side. One flanked out to the left. Harn the back. Lewandowski has time. Throws left sideline. Hits a man. And a spectacular catch out there by Tommy Coates. Second. 20 seconds. What a football game we have had here. Lewandowski throws left side, and that is caught. Inbounds, clocks. They do have time again. The clock stops on all first downs as well. Pass up the middle, caught Delaney. First down as he is across the 35 to the 37 yard line. Looks near side, has his man. It's Holty across the 45. He is near first down yardage across the 46 to the 47, maybe a yard or two shy of a first down. Beautiful. 
powerful throw. Lewandowski finds Holte, who shakes off a tackle inside the 30, up to the 26-yard line. Wow, what a play. 38 yards on the toss from Lewandowski to Holte. It was blowing south to north earlier today. It's now blowing north to south, so the wind at the back of the Warhawks, and they're still fighting for yards down at the 20-yard line. Good. Tough running on the inside, and a timeout taken by the Warhawks with exactly 60 seconds left in the game. Seconds now left on the clock for Whitewater. Lewandowski looks, throws, finds his man across the middle, and breaking a tackle and getting down to the 10. And a big first down for Sam Delaney and the Warhawks. He was going to be wide open. Feel free to shut me up and do that at any time. Lewandowski finds his receiver. Holte on the outside, inside the 10-yard line, down to the 9. Clock continues to run. Is uh, just about 10 yards away. Four wide receivers in the ballgame. Lewandowski looks, throws for the end zone. Has his man! Touchdown! Touchdown! Unbelievable catch! It is Tommy Coates on the reception. Got one foot down, and with 19 seconds left, the Warhawks have taken the lead. Wow! Unbelievable. That's just, hey, I'm throwing it up into the corner to a trash can. That was the 12th play of the drive. Evan Lewandowski complete to Tommy Coates for the touchdown. 19 seconds left. They have that lead at this point, 28-24. Here's the final play of the game. Last three seconds, King, with only a one-person rush, gives it to Miller. I thought that was a Double forward pass. pass. He can throw it again. He, he can throw it again. Throws it back to King, who's going to throw it back to Miller. Miller still looking for somebody. Evades Gallagher and now it. throws it back. It's on the turf. It becomes a fumble. The game is over. And the Warhawks are storming the field after a huge come-from-behind victory. The final today, 28-24 and number one. Jubilation, a huge crowd, and they pull off what is realistically the upset, folks. There is no way around saying it otherwise. Home or not, it is an upset. 28-24, Whitewater takes down number one and breaks the 21-game winning streak of UMHB. Lewandowski, 28 for 35, 301 yards, three passing touchdowns. Thomas for UMHB, 17 rushes, 69 yards, two rushing touchdowns. JB, what an atmosphere, what a game, and I'm sorry about Southwestern and what happens to them as they face UMHB after this one. Yeah, yeah, UMHB is going to really come out swinging after that loss, but hey, you got to give both programs credit. I mean, it was billed as probably one of the biggest games that we've seen in the regular season and, and who knows how many you know decades, and it lived up to the hype and then some uh, outstanding individual and team performances. You know, I thought that the um, the drive at the end was really incredible, and the fact that you know the Warhawks basically had to go 99 yards the whole you know to to, to win the game. I mean, that, that's kind of the stuff out of movies. So, well done. I'm pretty sure we'll see a, a playoff rematch between these two squads um, in about 13 weeks, 14 maybe. <laughs> Tell us more about regions four through six here with the other scores. Well, you almost called the, the upset of the weekend, in my opinion, because River Falls sure came awfully close to not taking down St. John's. They, they they only lost by three. There were a couple of other close games. Another upset was Platteville beating uh, Bethel, who some have picked to, to win the, the MIAC, but maybe not now. Uh, 
that that was a, that was kind of a surprise. Elsewhere, I mean, Oshkosh lost, but that's to a D2 school. Won't affect their um, D3 rankings by any stretch. And then, you know, a lot of the usual suspects. Hope uh, wins an interesting game between them and the Cohawks, 33-24. Uh, we saw Baldwin-Wallace barely get by uh, Wilmington. So I guess that it, it, sometimes be careful when you talk about easy schedules to open the season. It's been a little bit of a challenging start for them, um, and, and the OAC doesn't get any easier. Uh, out in Chicago, the Maroons win big over their rivals. St. Norbert outlasts uh, Stevens Point. Franklin, uh, we picked this game, Frank, and I, I really thought this was going to be a lot more competitive, but Aurora wins big, 49-16 to 16 over Franklin. That was kind of a surprise. And then looking out, you know, down through um, Washington U, thumps Hendricks pretty well. Uh, Greenville gets a gets a win elsewhere, you know, on the West Coast. Claremont and Mud Scripps wins big, so does Whitworth. DePaul takes care of Anderson. Ohio Northern gets their first win of the season, I believe, over Capital. Um, Trine and Rose Holman. I mean, this game was probably crunch time, videotape worthy, um, but there just there just too many great games to cover. But that's a big win for Trine uh, over over an NCAA playoff team in in Rose Holman from last year. And then lastly, Chapman Cal Lutheran 42-41 kind of came down to I think an extra point as well. We saw that and, and Redlands quietly starting off the year 0 and two. Kind of a surprise. To, uh, yep. Don't know what's going on out there, but um, there looks like there could be a new Skyac champ coming in 22. Feeling like that. And folks, that is crunch time for week two of the 2022 Division Three college football season. Okay, JB, let's talk about your uh, MVPs first. We'll get to a couple of the uh, things we've been promising uh, after that. Uh, but let's uh, go first off, your offensive uh, MVP, somebody that's getting some pro looks apparently from the NFL Draft Diamonds folks out there. And uh, he's proving his worth, even though his team almost gave up one of the largest leads in the history of the NCAA. But they were able to bounce back at the end, thanks in part to him. Yeah, and that's senior quarterback Alex Cohen of Anna Maria. Eight touchdowns. I mean, that's a pretty incredible performance. Six through the air, two on the ground. Uh, I think he was also in the Boston Globe like Golden Helmet Award winner for uh, for small college football this past weekend. Just an incredible performance. And hey, it's the first time ever that Anna Maria started off a season one and zero, undefeated, and uh, against a pretty solid. Uh, Mass Dartmouth team that some people thought would be in contention for the MassCAC title. So that's a kind of a statement win for the ECFC, in my opinion, and really says a lot about you know where the AMCATs are headed. It's kind of funny that your special teams player is somebody uh, from a team that also had a hold on ultimately, but it, this makes a lot of sense when you look at Kyle Howes. Yeah, I mean, he not only did he catch, I think, three or four passes during the game for the Riverhawks, but he returned two kickoffs for touchdowns and i think one of them was like 95 yards i mean what a what a performance and and really susquehanna needed those points because the dips came uh, crashing back mostly because of the guy who is my defensive pick three interceptions in a game it's not a keith millen uh, but it's close and so um you know we'll we'll, we'll take it uh, and Hey, that makes my job easier. I just look and say, two guys from the same game, perfect. Boom, there you go. 
Justin Gerhardt, congratulations as uh, JB's yep. defensive MVP. Granted, uh, I know it was a losing effort and you probably wanted the win, but hey, still, it's worth something. Speaking about uh, we worth something, um, our picks are uh, looking a little feeble on my side of the ledger, but I'm not scared. I'll be back. I am at 17-11. He's yep. at 21-7 and after a pretty poor week two on my part. I started hot and then just fizzled pretty much uh, on week two. Okay, where to begin uh, here? Uh, first off, I'm going to give you your soapbox moment here, I guess. Uh, what happened with Hobart? Because a lot of people are wondering what was going on there. Why didn't David Cruson start the game? Why did a lot of players that we expected to see not start the game? And how does Morrisville State end up winning that game in the way they did? Well, I, all I can say is from some fact checking I've done is that Cruson was physically healthy enough to play. He just was, uh, I think this is a situation where there was a disciplinary issue. And so coach DeWall, um, and he has a very my way or the highway approach to how he runs his program. I think there's pros and cons to that. Uh, unfortunately, in this case, you know, this, the backup quarterback Pelletier came in only completed one pass, couldn't really get it going. So then they went to the third string quarterback, Johnny Columbia, who I think this was his first ever um, you know, actual game action. And, you know, he did his best under the circumstances. It seemed like Boswell must not be 100%. He only had two carries for about four yards. It's very uncharacteristic of him. A lot of young players on defense, maybe it was the injury bug something but yeah you got the credit Morrisville they they made big plays when when they had the opportunity and those two fumble returns really ended up being the difference makers in the game uh, the second one though was really could have been easily avoided it was just a kind of a boneheaded play by the return man to not just the wave the fair catch and just let it go over his head um, and even you know throw it out of the end zone or something if you if you if you do screw up like that just the just I don't know. I, th I have a feeling when you have a situation with a team that has one of their senior leaders in trouble with the coach not playing, I think it sends a, you know, sends a tough message, but it can also demoralize a team. And, and they, they played probably about as bad a game as I can remember seeing a statesman play in about 30 years. It was just – and I don't know who to point the finger at. You know, you could – yeah, maybe it's, you know, DeWall's approach might need to change, or maybe there's some guys on this team that need a little bit of maturity and growing up. I don't know, but it definitely does not spell anything positive for Hobart looking down the line because their schedule is not getting any easier after this. Well, they got to win the league. That's what it comes down to at this point. And uh, whether or not they can, whether or not this affects the clubhouse ultimately, what everything that happened on Saturday, we'll find out. You know, it, it, Kevin DeWall is a very, very good head coach, uh, no doubt. And uh, he can get that clubhouse back together again after if it was disciplinary, uh, the ramifications from that. Uh, realistically, uh, Hobart came in with some heavy, heavy expectations that they were going to be the team to compete with Ithaca. And that was almost going to be it, especially after you see RPI going down against Carnegie Mellon. You kind of know that RPI is a different team offensively this year just from that game. But in the meantime, while that game was being played, Morrisville does what they do to Hobart, and it makes a lot of head scratching going on. Then you throw Union into the mix from the Liberty League with that big 70-plus point performance, and you say, well, I know it's Worcester State, but we'll see what it all means 
Liberty League play is going to be pretty, pretty tough again. Give an edge to Ithaca, no doubt right now, but we'll see where they go with that uh, down the line. Their game against RPI is not for a while in Union, and then obviously Cortica at Yankee Stadium. They've got some interesting games that they'll have to prove themselves in for sure. Also, the Hobart game. You cannot wipe that out just because of this loss. Ithaca-Hobart should be a very, very good game coming up later in the season. JB, you heard about it on uh, Around the Nation. Uh, we had actually broken this a little bit uh, to them, and they uh, did a little bit of their own investigating. So in the third quarter of the Springfield uh, game uh, versus Rowan at Springfield, here's a video we'll play over the top of this right now in which a game stoppage occurs. You can see Coach Sarazulo pointing up into the press box area that's at least the direction he's pointing in for those that don't know what's up there and the referee kind of nodding along here seeing something that he's pointing out realistically what it was was a tablet was being used by rowan's coaches from what we understand overhead on the press box area uh, to record the game and then somehow it was getting uh, shared downstairs i'm not sure it was being carried down there or how to show uh, players between series, to show you know essentially what you see in the NFL occur, but which is not allowed in college football. So the NCAA considered changing that rule about six years ago. They did not ultimately make a permanent rule change related to that. So uh, at the end of the game, uh, the web stream cuts off, but you'll see here something brewing. We'll let you hear it as well. Okay, you can hear the whistles and whatnot were going on there and everything else. So obviously coaches were pretty upset about the goings on players as well. And uh, we don't know exactly how deep it got later on. We heard it almost turned into a really ugly scene, but I think it was avoided in that respect. And so kudos to the Springfield staff and Rowan staff for breaking that apart before it got too bad. That said, we reached out to Rowan to find out after talking to the NJAC about what their view is on this whole thing. We asked for a statement. Marie Wozniak, the uh, Sports Information Director there, uh, sent this out on Monday. During a football game on September 10th, 2022, Rowan University was made aware of an unintentional error regarding the use of technology. The matter was appropriately addressed by game officials and immediate corrective actions were implemented by the Rowan coaching staff. We are aware that the events are currently under review and Rowan will fully cooperate in that process. So JB, heads may roll to a certain degree related to this. It sounds like if uh, there is an investigation going on, this is clearly outside the confines of the rules and fair play of the NCAA. It's a non-conference game and therefore it's interesting to see where jurisdiction falls on this. If the NJAC is going to independently try to take action against Rowan or who is exactly uh, going and doing the investigation in something like this. Give me your view on your thoughts. You, you saw the video, you've heard the stories here um, in that statement now. It sounds like they're not disclaiming it happened. So what is your thought on it? Well, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's technically cheating, right? So, you know, the, the obvious question is if, if they are found you know, guilty of, of trying to bend the rules or whatever, I mean, I don't, think there's a situation where we'd see like a forfeit kind of thing, Frank. I mean, I think the game is probably going to stand 
but it's certainly something that I'm sure that um, yeah they'll have to take some corrective action on in some form or fashion as an institution because it's just a bad look overall. Um, yeah, maybe Coach Acorsi wasn't aware of this was going on. If he was, I, you know, I don't know how you really condone that. Um, I know he's under some pressure to turn that program around, but. Yeah, if I was a Springfield uh, fan or a player and a coach, I'd probably be a little upset, especially with the way things went down. Yeah, I, I think your point is a valid one. How do you separate this from the upper levels of uh, management of the team? Because they likely know what was going on. The, the best you can do is try to plead ignorance. But when you look over to the other folks in the press box not doing the same, why would you think that they're not doing it because they're – uh, you know, not technocrats of some sort or, you know, uh, geeks uh, with the uh, tech. Uh, that, that just doesn't work. That's a kind of weird excuse, ultimately, if that's what you're going to fall back on here. I'm glad that the school is admitting to it. I, I think that eliminates one facet of where this can go off the rails quite often. Now it's just a question of what are they going to do about it? Uh, will it lead to a forfeit? I highly doubt it as well. I don't see the grounds for the forfeit. I don't think Springfield's asking for the forfeit necessarily either. That said, this needs to be corrected and it needs to be clarified to everybody out there that might have thought about doing this, that it is not in the confines of fair play in the NCAA. If you want the rule changed, make sure you let the folks that change the rules know you want it changed. But currently, we aren't there yet. And so you can't do it. Finally, the top 25 from D3Football.com had something occur that has never happened before. In fact, uh, my ballot had the same thing, and I pointed it out to you yesterday, uh, JB, and it came to fruition in the entire poll. I said I had five WIAC teams in my ballot, five WIAC teams, or WIAC, if you prefer, appear in the top 25. Now... Granted, it's tough here to justify this in some ways, but it's tough to knock them out as well because, JB, some of these teams have played nothing but maybe one D3 team and one non-D3 team, ultimately. I think Oshkosh and Platteville are those two teams, at least, that uh, or two of the teams that had that situation. So how do you how do you base anything here when the the WEAC teams can't find non-conference opponents yet we know they're of some level of strength i understand rosti isn't in for bethel right now but still that's a good team with or without him he's it's a great team with them let's make it clear here but you know platteville beats them and michigan tech isn't exactly the most pushover team in the upper levels of uh, college football so i i just don't know what else to do in a situation like this but to include them after that win versus bethel and make sure that they're above bethel on my ballot at least for now what's your thought on the one uh, we act getting five oh, i think it makes sense especially this stage of the season and the preliminary results i mean yeah, if you're a team that knocks off number 11, you should be in the top 25. And the other schools like lacrosse and and Oshkosh and others are all playing at a really high level. So I don't I don't have an issue with it necessarily. Um, yeah, the reality is is that probably only two teams from the Y or WEAC can real, realistically make the playoffs. So maybe it's it's kind of neither here nor there. I mean, it's nice that they get ranked, but at the end of the day. There's really only going to be the conference champion and maybe a Pool C team uh, like we had last year. We'll, we'll have to we'll have to see how it shakes out. 
Well, you know, let's talk about the implications. And I was uh, chatting with Kyle King about this uh, yesterday or Sunday, actually, at this point. Um, Whitewater, to me, can go 8-2 and two and get in the playoffs. That win versus Mary Harden-Baylor gives them the street cred that if they lose to a WEAC game and don't win through Pool A, 8-2, and two, they will go, I think. You cannot underestimate that type of win. You usually don't have that kind of win to even talk about when you're comparing teams in Pool C. So there you have it. Now, when it comes to Mary Harden-Baylor, would 8-2, and two, if they lost to Harden-Simmons, get them in? I don't think so, JB. I mean, I, my hot take on Saturday was that the final team chosen this year will be an 8-2 and two team. I understand defending national champion, but that only goes and helps you in terms of seeding if you go 10-0. and 0. That's gone. You're on your own now if you're Mary Harden Baylor. Nobody's going to be there to save you with kind of this unwritten rule. 8-2, and two, I really don't know if they're going to get in uh, ultimately. So more or less, when I go down to Abilene in a couple of weeks, it is an elimination game for those teams because I think Harden-Simmons is going to have kind of the same issue unless they do something great against Platteville. And I'm not just talking about winning, but winning big against Platteville. I, I just think that the team that loses that game is on the outside looking in and without much hope getting in. Your thoughts on that as well? Well, I think the, the NCAA would look like major hypocrites if they let in Mary Harden-Baylor at 8-2 and two when they've been denying Harden-Simmons at 9-1 and one for a few years going now. So I, I think the writing's on the wall that, yeah, this, this Harden-Simmons, Mary Harden-Baylor matchup in week four is really not only the conference championship, but like you said, it's a playoff elimination game. King uh, had stated uh, pretty clearly that his uh, teammates had some come-to-Jesus talks already from uh, Saturday night into Sunday and that they know what's in front of them. He was very calm. Uh, his demeanor was very cool and collected uh, as he has been through this whole process. And uh, th they know what's going on here. Their defense obviously needs to pick up things a little bit. They have had two what I would call fair games, uh, to say the least. And fair ain't going to do it against number four in the nation or number six in the nation or whatever they are, they are at any given time. So realistically here, understand that Mary Harden Baylor knows what's in front of them. If you're a team that's yet to play them, Good luck to you. Uh, it could be a pretty painful experience uh, for you in that respect, but uh, I, I'm, I'm impressed to see that maturity level from Mary Harden-Baylor. Now, we'll see what happens in two weeks because you know Harden-Simmons has this date circled on their calendar every year, and they need to get over that hump, and they know if ever there was a chance to do it, it's this year, but a Whitewater win by Mary Harden-Baylor may have made them more susceptible than a Whitewater loss. Ultimately, we'll see how it plays out. Final thoughts for today's Crunch Time, sh crunch time Show, he said. Yeah, like I said before at the top, it was just a kind of a crazy weekend of carnage, upsets all over the place. I mean, half the top 25 lost, I think, or maybe a third or something. So we still have another couple of weeks of these kind of big time, uh, both non-conference and now conference games that are coming up. Um, and so... There's going to be more movement in the top 25. There's going to be teams going up, 
going down and out, you know, so we'll have to wait and see how, how it all plays out. But this is where, you know, I think some of the kinks of the first couple of weeks are now kind of being figured out. And so teams are going to start really developing their identities. Um, we'll probably see a little less of the special teams mistakes or plays perhaps, but you, you never know. That's the beauty of college football. And that's why we love the game so much because really anything can happen any given Saturday. Well, I, I said uh, not that long ago, I usually wait till week three to sort of shift around my top 25 uh, with uh, the first few weeks of results. Well, Division Three's team said, no, Frank, you're going to do it in week two and you're going to like it. And we had to basically do just that, myself and 24 other voters. And you saw what happened in the end. North Central is our number one team in the land, thanks to the loss by Mary Harden Baylor in Whitewater, they, they, reminding us all, they ain't going nowhere, folks. Uh, so one loss is not going to define their season, that's for sure. We'll see you Friday, folks, with uh, hopefully an interview or two, our preview of week three, and our predictions. I need to get back on top here, and I'll need a big week to do it. Uh, you stop cringing over there, kid. We'll see you soon, folks.